I guess what I'm thinking of now is just some of the times where the hardcore albums or bands or things, they always had a soft song. Mm-hmm. There's always like the one soft song on the album. <laughs> right. I feel, I feel like that's what we call it. Which you, it was called the soft song and you just knew like <laughs> there was, there was that one. Oh yeah. The soft song. Nobody knew the name of that song, but it was the, like probably the last song on the album or maybe right in the middle but that's the soft song. That's another bit from my conversation with my friend Forrest back in 2018 when I started working on this podcast series. And it's the inspiration for this episode. Today we're talking about the soft songs. Welcome to the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. My name is Crispin Mayfield and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, a writer and neighbor. And together we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This is season six, and we're calling it Shamecore Records. There was this constant theme in these soft songs. God loves me even though I'm unworthy of love. So, so you asked me to pick um, my most spiritually significant hardcore song uh-huh. from kind of adolescence. And the one that I, I listened to a lot, you know, like I'd be in my car by myself and I'd feel like I needed to sing some something spiritual, worshipful, often feeling like sinful or whatever. And the, the one that I went to a lot was um, Matthias Replaces Judas. Judas saw the my transgressions it's a song from this band called Showbread. Usually they're screaming amidst guitars and synthesizer. But they aren't screaming here. And actually, the song features Reese Roper, the frontman of Five Iron Frenzy and Brave St. Saturn, who I talked about with Brandy Miller earlier this season. He sings, Jesus, my heart is all I have to give to you, so weak and so unworthy. It's a reminder of how unworthy we are to approach God. Here's another soft song, the last song on Under Oath's album, They're Only Chasing Safety. And I heard a voice through the discord Of a deluge of passes by And I saw one gaze frozen inside Eventually, the singer speaks from God's perspective. Hey, unfaithful. Hey, ungraceful. Hey, unloving. I will love you. you. 
It's hitting again on this contrast between broken humans and a loving God. Then there's Bliss Tearing Eyes from the Dead Poetic album we've talked about this season. And I can't forgive myself for all the things I've done. But yeah, you do. Played one more time for me. This shows up all over Christian music. When I was a teenager, I really loved the soft song on the album, Supertone Strike Back. The chorus is a simple two lines that go like this. What me, God? Why should you choose me? Your team, God. Can you use even me? Another example of this is the song Getting Into You by Reliant K, a pop punk band. But again, this is the soft song. With my life, I've been a liar and I'll never amount to the kind of person you deserve to worship you. You say you will not dwell on what I did, but rather what I do. You say, I love you and that's what you are getting yourself into. It really is reassuring to know that God will love you in spite of whatever you may do. But is there a problem when that's become the core of how we relate to God? I asked Danielle Schroyer about this. She's the author of the book Original Blessing, and I talked to her back in episode three of this season. In, on this topic, uh, in a lot of these hardcore albums uh, that I have that I'm exploring, uh, there a lot of times there's a soft song, and it's always like God, I'm horrible. How could you love me? Um, sometimes it's in maybe it's the screaming songs, like there's this uh, Cities Burn song, which is just like I'm a monster, I'm horrible, and I wonder like what's the impact of that because. In a lot of ways, for some people, that's been a life-giving place to start. I'm horrible, yet God still loves me. But I think if we stay there, there's something that doesn't help us. I don't know if you would agree with that. No, I would absolutely agree. And I think I think what that is, is that it, you're solidifying your identity around that thing. Mm. You know? There's a very big difference between I acted like a monster, which that guy singing hardcore may have, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. I wasn't there. Probably he did. We all have acted like monsters. Right. But switching from that to I am a monster is solidifying um, a part of your identity that you should never box in. Mm -hmm. Like, why would you strengthen that? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no wisdom in that. And so, um, again, it's just putting way too much air um, to the fire of that particular thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and there's no wisdom tradition in the whole world that would say that's the way to get more enlightened or to become more compassionate or to become more like Jesus or God. or I mean, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's deeply isolating. Mm-hmm. And then it's the exact opposite of the thing that you need right. when you're trying to find connection, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. We put ourselves in a closet and that is, it's just super heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. 
Attachment science actually has something to say about this. There's one attachment style called anxious preoccupied attachment. And it's called that because you're anxious and preoccupied about the relationship. Will I be abandoned? Am I really worthy of love? Am I lovable? It's hard to ever relax and feel safe in your close relationships because you feel that there's something disgusting about you, something unlovable about you. And therefore, your relationships stand on very fragile ice. This tends to create clinginess, always worried that there's something wrong with a relationship, always worried that you're going to be abandoned, because it's hard to believe that you are inherently lovable. And there's been some, though not nearly enough, examination into what this looks like when we have an anxious, preoccupied relationship with God. In one of my favorite scholarly articles on attachment and spirituality, the psychologist guessed that approaching God with this paradigm, you love me even though I'm unlovable, actually perpetuates feelings of insecurity rather than helping us feel safe and calm with God. The article says, In other words, interactive affect regulation may provide temporary emotional compensation, but does not necessarily change the structure of internal working models. Which means that when we continually approach God as though we are unworthy of love, we will continue to view ourselves as unlovable. In the moment, we might feel better about ourselves, but it will maintain that subconscious feeling that there's something really wrong with me that makes me unworthy of love. And that actually puts stress on our nervous system over time. It's not a healthy place to live. I got a chance to talk with Robert Monson on this topic. He's one of the hosts of the Three Black Men podcast and also a writer, musician, and a fantastic Twitter follow. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this question. It's, uh, do you think that we are deserving or undeserving of God's love? I hate this question. I, I, I know that's why I asked it. I, I feel like it cuts to the heart of like kind of the like philosophical question. I mean, it's philosophical, but it really impacts people on a day to day. If we have people that are coming into the church that have been told over and over, you don't deserve love. You're a worthless human being. Mm-hmm. And then they walk into church and, and the pastor says, God has chosen to love you, even though you're totally worthless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, oh, I hate this question. Uh, beep. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I believe we fundamentally are deserving of God's love if if we're going to frame it in that way. Um, sure, if you're going to pin me down, uh, <laughs> I'm going to say, yeah, we're deserving because um, I think of theology this way, and this will always be my limitation as both a Black man, a Black chronically ill man, a Black chronically ill theologian, in the context of living in America, all of the theological presuppositions I have come through those lenses and through the way in which I view theology. And 
um, I need to be able to have bread that I can give to people that look like me that I see in the street. And so am I biased? Absolutely. And so I bring that to the table. So I need to be able to have answers that I can give to the most hurting person to the average brother that I and sister that I see on the street to the uh, non-binary person that I see on the street. And so it feels like a slap in the face to say to someone, you do not deserve love. And if I'm wrong, I will go into eternity and I will take that L, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> argue with somebody else, argue with your mama. Uh, don't argue with me. So for me, I, I think there are obviously a few passages that people will wrangle to death, mostly in Romans, to prove that no one is deserving of God's love. Uh, no one, we deserve wrath and punishment and death and destruction. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when I look at the context of not just the Bible, but life itself and the sacred text of humanity, imago Dei, nature, and the witness that I feel in my heart. No, I believe that every human being is worthy of God's love. I'm not merely limited to a few verses. Um, but again, argue with your mama, not me. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> um, So yeah, I believe that we are. And I feel that, that that grand scope of all the things that I just named uh, forms how I look at the world in, in that complex web of relationships, um, nature, uh, the inner witness that I feel through the spirit, um, that forms the basis by which I think that, yes, that heals the soul. And so, yes, I believe that we're all worthy of love. Right. And I think there is that, like, when we get into the binary, that is problematic. And, and you know, in some ways, like that, that binary thinking wasn't the way that the, that the biblical writers would have been thinking anyway. Right. That's mm -hmm. such a white Western, like, let's, let's scientificize this. True. Um, right. So I want to, I want to own that, but it's a good starting point for, for a conversation. No, you're absolutely right. Right. I mean, some of it makes me think like, what's the nature of love and is love mm -hmm. something that is based on anything that we can do? And people will run with that and say, yeah, we don't deserve love, but God gives it because, mm. you know, but that's still bringing that, like, have you earned it or not? Mm. So we really get stuck on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and to your point of like, what is healing? I think for me, uh, knowing that I am worthy of love has been healing and transforming and not to bring this back to uh, Henry Nowen, uh, but uh, <laughs> Henry Nowen's work has uh, been healing for me um, in this context. Um, he had this, I've read a lot of his work. So, uh, uh, so um, I think he, he had this book, I think it's called the inner voice of love. Um, mm -hmm. 
And if, if that's not wrong, somebody will correct me. Um, but I in feel it, like a lot of his titles are like similar enough that yeah, I know. Yeah. You just kind of like throw <laughs> throw a rock in that direction, you and you'll probably hit something. <laughs> and and so and so he has this context of yeah. So I think it's the inner voice of love by Henry Now, and and he starts it off talking about like the beloved. And how we're how we're meant to be known as the beloved, you know, first in our friendships and then by God and how what that does when we know that we're beloved mm-hmm. and, um, you know, by one another and then by God. And um, I cried all really like, well i'm a crier so anyone who's listening to this knows that i cry easily um <laughs> but that notion that thought that my my very identity is beloved and what that does in the context of my relationships with others mm-hmm. and if i have a relationship with you out of that identity that if the two of us know that I want to have a friendship based upon you are beloved to me. I'm beloved to you. And how do we have a friendship out of that? That changes everything. And he was saying, what if our relationship with God is based out of that place? And that is transforming. That's healing. And that does something more than fire and brimstone preaching everywhere. Yeah, I've been trying to put my finger on what is it about this message that sounds like good news uh, when people say you're a wretched sinner, you know, undeserving of love, but God has chosen to love you. And I think what you're just saying there is like that preacher is saying God is doing something incongruous with what your identity is out of his grace. And what you're saying is, is that there's this sense that like when God loves us, that actually is the base of our identity or the base of our identity. Isn't that we deserve eternal punishment. The base of our identity is child of God. Yeah. Which is completely different. And I think, you know, I've been in context that try to motivate through that, that uh, wretched sinner ideology and it's painful Um, And yes, it does motivate to acts of righteousness and it motivates you to crucify sin and to fast and to pray. Um, It's also interesting that those same contexts were some of the most racist, homophobic, uh, (laughs) um, um, hateful towards women. Uh, Like those (laughs) contexts were some of the most fundamentalist place ever. But we were fasting, you know, like we were doing the stuff. We were praying, though. (laughs) Some of those same places were present on January 6th, too. But I digress. Um, (laughs) but, uh, so I don't know the the outworkings Mm. were a mess, but we were doing those things. Um, and so it's, it's interesting, the, the trade-offs, but I love what you just said. Like, I think they are incongruous with this nature within that we are children of God and you don't motivate your own children that way. Like no parent is is like that with their children. I mean, not good parents. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but for some reason, 
I think with Christianity, there's this notion that some kind of external factor has to be laid upon children of God to make them holy um, in a different way than you would interact with your own children. And I don't know what that is about. Well, I think that if, if our base state is children of wrath, then there has to be a change for us to become children of God. And, and I think, you know, you're talking about the outworkings of this and those places being racist and homophobic and sexist. Um, and I just think about even like the history of Western Christianity. Mm-hmm. If we are, if everyone is a child of wrath, not a child of God, it gives us such license to treat people as though they're children of wrath. Truly. I think. Yeah. Thinking through whatever you want to look through in terms of whatever violence or enslavement has been done by white Christians, right? That's kind of the premise. These are not children of God. These are people that are that are going to be punished. And if they happen to become Christians and get saved, well, you know, they got lucky, but they don't deserve respect. They don't deserve to be seen as human, right? Yeah. And I think the undergirding of that is everyone's a sinner and everyone, like no one deserves love. No one deserves God's love. And if we start with that premise that you don't deserve God's love, it becomes easy to say, well, I got God's love by grace that I don't deserve, but also you don't deserve it. So we can treat you however we want. True. Yeah, you're right. And and then in our American context, I was thinking this as you were talking, yeah. we can't underscore enough the mixture with white supremacy and power, the, the dimension of power mixed yeah. with the, the children of wrath. And then that explosion um, mixed with the gospel message, all of that is so toxic because how that interacts with the human psyche, how that co-mingles with people who genuinely want to be transformed. But now trying to extract all that out of people who their inner being, they want to be children of love, children of light. But now feeling this pressure that they have to, as as you were saying, they have to do something external to be mm-hmm. radically shifted into something wholly other than themselves um, is so toxic. Right. And I'd imagine that for um, you, I, talking to Brandy Miller about this a few episodes ago, uh, that shift looks like assimilating to whiteness. For- yeah. For a lot of folks, right? Like you can be, you're, you're totally welcome here. You can be saved too, right? Uh, the grace is open to you, but that, you know, that looks like joining our group and becoming like our group. And then you can experience God's love and be a child of God. Which is violent. Yeah. Um, on the psyche, on the emotions, everything. I mean, which is violence. Uh, phew. Yeah. And it it makes me think about like, even if we look at something like healthcare as an example, Mm -hmm. right? And in this idea of like, if we approach the world, like everyone is beloved by God, Mm -hmm. then there's this sense of like, well, everyone deserves care. Yes. But if we start with this idea of like, 
everyone makes their own decisions, which then leads to their own punishment. And that punishment is good because that's the wrath of God on them. Then, then it totally changes our com- complete approach to, to other people. And it also makes me think about like Mako Nagasawa has talked about um, the, you know, this emphasis on God's wrath and incarceration in the U S and like, how those are so intertwined. It's true. You know, so this country is looked at as a country built on Judeo-Christian values, which depending on how you look at that, yes, um, (laughs) which is toxic. (laughs) Um, I mean, yes, I guess. I mean, it is built on white Judeo-Christian values. Um, But to your point, um, is that good? (laughs) Um, yeah, like how we do healthcare is outworkings of that, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, how we do punishment, how we do, um, policing is outworking of theological premise, uh, how we do jailing, you know, and incarceration is built upon theological understanding of what punishment looks like. Mm. So yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a, that is a microcosm of what people believe about punishment, both now and in the age to come. I mean, this is, I mean, it's when you break it down. Yeah. You're, you're watching what people's understanding of what punishment looks like, which is why for a lot of people, even for a lot of Christians, they're not seeing a problem. <laughs> They're like, right. what's wrong with the jailing system? There is not a problem, baby. <laughs> there, I mean, poli- with policing, you, you'll notice a lot, not a lot of certain kinds of Christians, you know? They're like, I'm not seeing a problem with the policing system. Clue me in. And you're like, you could show them even videos and you'll, you'll try and snap no. a finger in front of their face. And they're like, so walk me through what's the problem. And it's part of, do, what do you believe about humanity? You know, kind of to this whole thing that we're talking about. What do you believe about the belovedness of humanity? And if you go back up to preaching, what Jonathan Edwards have, has to say about humans, what do you think about wretchedness and vileness? What do you think about, you know, to your question, do we deserve love? If you don't think we deserve love, no, you don't have a problem with Elijah McClain dying. You don't have a problem with Breonna Taylor getting shot up in her home. It's not clicking for you. So go ahead. What were you going to say? On Facebook, I saw a white Christian say, like, so someone had posted a video. Um, I, th- I think that it was uh, George Floyd's death. And someone commented under it just from Romans, like the wages of sin is death. Right. And it's, yeah. And it's like, and, and then they expanded, like, not necessarily like, we don't know if he, if he actually committed a crime, but we do know that he sinned just like everyone else. If our core identity is we are sinners deserving of wrath, then that gives us license to dole that wrath out. However, we see fit, I think. And imagine the disconnect between your orthodoxy, your orthopraxy, and your orthopathy. All of those things not being aligned in a way that allows your heart to be uplifted Mm -hmm. to God in a way 
where you believe that our core identity is as the beloved of God. When I think of theology, any theology that distracts you from our core identity is tethered to the belovedness of God. To me, you are in danger. <laughs> danger, Will Robinson. Like you are, <laughs> you in danger now. Like you are in danger because that's how you could arrive at that conclusion. And all across this country and in countries of the earth, mm. people can arrive at that. I mean, there people were watching slaves get beat to death and were like, mm. okay, y'all, what's for dinner tonight? Right. <laughs> I mean, they I mean, nope. Yeah. Nothing was registering. I mean, nothing people were mm -hmm. sending missionaries all across this globe and watching people get stoned to death and nothing was clicking. And so, yeah, I think it's chilling to me. I mean, it's, it's very much chilling. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's horrific. And to think about what are the ways even in, you know, your, your typical church on a Sunday morning, how does that theology still live? Right. When it is, it's in this context of God chose to love you anyway, we're doing this you know, kind of the, the theology of what it means to be human is to be disposable. In fact, there's this, Ooh, there's this old yeah. preacher, I read it in this book, Gentler God, and he talks about this old preacher would always tell the story of how he became a Christian, which was his dad was throwing some garbage in the fire. Um, and he said, this is kind of like us. Like God has said, like, you know, I, I'm just going to throw this garbage away. And then Jesus said, oh, wait, I want, I want that. Like pull it, you know, let's pull it back from the fire. <laughs> and you're like that. What a picture of God to say, like, the, you know, humans are garbage and disposable. And that, yeah, it just fits with the capitalistic system, fits with enslavement, fits with genocide. Yeah. People wonder why people will, there are people who will never step foot in church again. It, it will never cease to amaze uh -huh. me why there are these think pieces. Right. Gen Z is not coming to church. Millennials not coming to church. Black people aren't coming to church. White youth aren't coming to church. And I, y'all, y'all are really re researching. Your messages are trash and, and you, re you refuse to learn perpetually. And I am wondering why you're investing all of this time, research, and money instead of learning. To me, as someone who has survived massive amounts of trauma, to me, the only thing that has tethered me to any sort of sanity, to be honest, is the idea that God loves me. And um, to me, I don't know another way forward. And so the idea of the God who throws you away or the God who's like cold and distant or the Gandalf God, uh, like that to me is un unhelpful. And you're wondering, <laughs> you're like, God hates you. <laughs> and you're trash and you're like, why are people coming to church? And your messages are still long as redacted. And so you're wondering what, why are people coming to church? Yeah. People are leaving the church because they need a place to heal 
and they want a refuge from the harshness of the world. And they aren't finding that in the four walls of the church. Somehow, on a podcast about Christian hardcore, I've ended up talking about Reese Roper a lot. But I think that one song he wrote really captures what I've come to understand about how God sees us. It's an oldie but a goodie. The song is called Dandelions. In a field of yellow flowers underneath the sun It's a metaphor. A young boy gathers flowers for his mother, and the beautiful bouquet he's gathered turns out to be dandelions. But when she sees the flowers, she holds them to her heart and puts them in a prized place. This is very different than a parent who is disgusted with the dandelions, but will take them anyway. She sees love where anyone else would see weeds. And this sounds similar to that same theme. You're unlovable, but God loves you. But it's just the opposite. God sees how very lovable you are, even if no one else sees it. From an outside perspective, we see weeds. But that's not what the mother sees. She's not pretending to see something delightful. She is delighted. This isn't, you brought me weeds, but I'll treat you like you brought me flowers anyway. This is, oh my gosh, You brought me flowers. And we'll talk more about this later. Does God draw close to us with squinted eyes, pretending we are something we are not? Or does God look at us, all our strengths and flaws and warts and all, and say, I love you, and it doesn't even compute to me whether you deserve it or not, because that's not what love is about. I read Daniel Schroer's book a couple of years ago, and there are a few lines that have sunk into my soul, and I wanted to share one of them. She writes, We have all failed, not only because we have sinned, but because we have thought it was wise to keep tabs at all. She's reminding us that true love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's not like God is choosing to ignore how bad you are. God doesn't see you as bad. God sees flowers, period. We don't need to keep reminding ourselves how worthless we are. If God decided that we are worthy of love, by what other measure can we decide that we are not? This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, where DL is often talking about weird bits of Christian media. Find us on the web as well. Also, we love getting emails from listeners. You can find the links to our website, handles, and email in the description of the podcast episode. Support the show on Patreon and get monthly extra episodes on evangelical culture for as little as $1.50 a month. 
DL's book, Myth of the American Dream, is available anywhere you get your books. And lastly, artwork for this season was designed by Zach Bard and theme music by Forrest Johnson. Thanks for listening.